Today I'm doing the third sermon in the series on the life of Moses, and I'm reading from Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, seeing no, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known, you think? When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they, were, they came to draw water and fill the troughs to, uh, to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? And he answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he, Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Today's text starts with the words, one day after Moses had grown up. It's important to remember just how Moses had grown up, in a palace, in luxury, having the best education Egypt had to offer, which was the best in the world. He had personal tutors. He had been instructed in the protocol, lifestyle, and culture of Egypt. The leap from being in the home of Hebrew slave parents to the throne room of Egypt, must have, it would have been staggering for any of us. What would it have been to a young boy? But somehow Moses adjusted and Moses made it. No Old Testament character, except for Solomon and Daniel, probably had such training and knowledge of the world as Moses had. He no doubt knew hieroglyphics. He know, probably knew the code of Hammurabi. And he knew power, real power, and was being groomed for more power. But it says Moses went out, and I love this phrase, to where his own people were. What he had learned early in life with his biological parents never left him. He saw himself, despite all that Egypt had given him, as a Hebrew, not an Egyptian, as a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The slaves of Egypt, not the royalty of Egypt, were his people. And what Moses saw when he went to his own people disturbed him. He saw oppression. He saw beatings. He saw cruelty. And something rose up in him. A desire to help his people rose up. A desire for justice rose up. A desire to rectify the situation rose up. And so Moses killed an Egyptian taskmaster and hit him in the sand. But apparently not too deep. Moses looked both ways, it said, to see if anyone had been looking. Apparently he didn't look behind him. Thinking no one had seen him, he came back the next day. And to his dismay, he saw his own people fighting each other. And he said to the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew, your brother? Isn't it bad enough the Egyptians beat us? Why are you beating on each other? 
And the Hebrew slave said, who are you to be a judge over us? Who are you? I saw you kill someone yesterday. Who are you to talk to me about the the terribleness of violence? Are you going to kill me like you did that Egyptian taskmaster? And Moses thought, "Uh uh-oh, busted. I've been made. And this kind of information will circulate fast. Have you noticed bad news travels fast? And sure enough, it did. And Pharaoh put out a wanted dead or alive poster on Moses. And Moses did what he could, the only thing he could do. He ran for his life. Moses' desire for justice, by the way, was not wrong. His desire to free his people was not misguided. It resonated with his faith, and it is something the Spirit of God had put in him. But Moses tried to create justice by his own initiative, not God's. He tried to bring deliverance by his own energy, by his own flesh, not by the power of the creator of the universe. Moses was operating independently of God, not working with him. Boy, the church often gets in trouble this way, don't we? We try to work for God instead of working with God. Do you hear me? We try to work for God instead of working with Him. That doesn't work well. Just ask Abraham and Sarah who thought Ishmael was a good idea. They went, hey, this child of promise hasn't showed up with. Let's get Hagar and get busy. Let's help God out. Ishmael was a child of the flesh, not the product of the Spirit. And we have paid for that mistake, haven't we? There's a world of difference between a great idea and a God idea. There's a world of difference between operating in the flesh like Moses did and operating like in the Spirit like he would later. The flesh cannot do God's work. It is limited by human willpower. It produces bad fruit or no fruit. When God is up to something, I've noticed you don't have to bury bodies. You don't have to force the issue. When God is up to something, it flows. When God moves, He really moves. I've noticed that things come together almost in spite of you. You're carried along with it. You don't have to take care of the Egyptians. God will take care of the Egyptians. In the flesh, you force change in situations or with people in order to get your way. You become pushy. You become a controlaholic. In the spirit, you you don't have to make a way because God will make the way. Are you in the flow of God's spirit or are you taking matters into your own hands and making your own mess like Moses did? God's work must be done God's way by God's spirit. The flesh doesn't cut it. You can say amen there. All right. Don't make me come out there and force the issue. Of course, Moses gets found out. He tries to bury the body, but he gets found out anyway. When you act in the flesh, you often have to bury things, hide things. You have to look both ways all the time over your shoulder. You tried to hide from the consequences of your action, but it just seems like the truth hunts you down. And the cover-ups just make matters worse. Richard Nixon resigned as president Not because he had some guys break into the water cape building. It's because he lied and lied and lied covering up. Bill Clinton 
wasn't impeached because he had an affair with Monica Lewinsky. He was impeached because he testified under oath, and it turned out he testified wrong. It's not our sins that get us in real trouble so much of the time. It's our cover-ups. Have you noticed? In any affair, the hardest part for the spouse who is the victim of adultery is not primarily the sex with somebody else, although that is very painful and covenant-shattering. But you know what's the hardest things for people to recover from from adultery? It's the months and months, if not the years and years of deceit, which when the person looks back, trust is completely destroyed. That's what's hard to get over. It's not, you hurt me, it's how can I ever trust you again? It's the cover-ups that do so much damage. You see, you can't forgive someone's lie. You can't start over with a cover-up. You have to come clean. Or the, because only the truth sets you free. Only confessed sin can be forgiven. A relationship can only be healed starting with the truth. And so Moses has to flee. It says he ran to Midian. The Midianites were despised both by Egypt and Israel. Israel thought the Midianites... Were, uh, were bad people and fought them. And of course, the Midianites, who were nomads and shepherds, were despised by the Egyptians, who hated nomads and shepherds. That's why they hated Israel. Moses now, at this point in his life, has become a part of a community everybody looked down on. And there he lived in obscurity as a shepherd. The very people his Egyptian tutors taught him to look down on how the mighty had fallen and fallen amazingly fast Moses became it says here a foreigner in a foreign land a legally tolerated person by the lowly Midianites in other words people that he thought were losers were looking down on him now he was a resident alien brothers and sisters I've got some bad news for you all this morning before this life is over all of us are going to take repeated trips to Midian. All of us will be spending some time in the desert. It may be an illness that takes you there. It may be the loss of a job that takes you there. It may be the betrayal by a spouse that takes you there. It may be because you lose a child that takes you there. Or you've worked for a dream all your life and those dreams are shattered. And it may be because you, like Moses screw up royally you do something you shouldn't have done sometimes as a matter of fact a lot of the times we are not sent to the desert we send ourselves to the desert just like Moses when you live in the flesh you almost always end up in the desert God will let you get yourself there he won't stop you and there sometimes he will leave you until you learn your lessons but I've got some good news for you this morning. God does some of his best work in the desert. There in the desert, your props, your crutches, your scaffolding gets stripped away. And when that happens, it's just you and God. You are, you know, and in those times of darkness, you go, where is God? Where is God? I've got more good news for you. You're closer 
than ever to where God wants you to be when you're in the desert. There in the desert, our vision clears. We become thirsty for what fills our soul instead of what fills our ego or our wallets. It's there we learn the lessons we need to learn from our failures. You know, in, in the desert is often the consequence for refusing to learn from our mistakes. The Bible calls people fools, which is the ancient word for idiot. And in Proverbs, it says, Here, here's the two ways that make you become an idiot, according to Proverbs. Is you make mistakes, and you make the same mistakes over and over and over, and you never learn a dead blame thing from it. You, according to Scripture, are an idiot. And if you want, really want to be wise, by the way, you not only, according to Proverbs, you not only learn from your mistake, you learn from somebody else's mistakes. And you don't make the mistakes they're making because you learn from them. That makes you wise, according to Proverbs. The desert is often that consequence from, for failing to learn our mistakes. When we get to the desert, we look in the mirror. It's the place where we finally get honest with ourselves and face what we see instead of what we don't see. Where we face what we are instead of what we want to be. In the desert is where we face our weaknesses and failures head on. No excuses, no watering down the truth. You see, when God wants us to grow, you get kicked out of Egypt. We get kicked out of the familiar, the easy, the palaces we construct for ourselves. Moses failed, but often it's only when we fail that we learn the real lessons of life. Unfortunately for us humans, humility often is only learned by humiliation. And often, it's self-inflicted humiliation at that. But that hard-taught humility lesson leads to something that God wants very much in us. It leads to a teachable spirit. Those who walk in the Spirit usually are those whose flesh has been broken through failure over and over again. Failure and brokenness make us teachable and open to something or someone beyond ourselves. You see, Moses was too strong, too educated, too cultured, too gifted, too advantaged, too independent, too arrogant to be used by Yahweh. He needed to be broken of these things if he was going to be any use to God at all. Moses needed to fail. He needed the desert. The problem with some of us is not that we fail too much, but that we live such overly cautious lives is that we don't fail enough in order to become, in order to become teachable and humble. We don't leave the palace at least Moses left the palace. At least Moses tried to deliver his people. At least Moses tried to have some justice. He risked and he failed. And guess what? That's what God was waiting for all along. He was waiting for Moses to fail. You know, I, I, John Ortberg has a new book out on how God invites us to walk through open doors. And he, there's a woman named Carol Dweck who explores people's ability to navigate adversity. She's interested in how people handle limitations, obstacles, and failure. 
In one study, she took a group of 10-year-olds and gave them increasingly difficult math problems to see how they could handle failure. Most students, when they kept getting it wrong or it was way over their head, they got discouraged and depressed. But there were just a few students in this experiment who had a totally different response. One kid, after he had blown another problem, rubbed his hands together, smacked his lips, and said, I love a challenge. Another kid, failing one math problem after another, said, You know, I was hoping this would be informative. Dweck said, What's wrong with them? I always thought you coped with failure or you didn't cope with failure. I never thought you loved failure. Were these alien children or were they just on something? Dweck realized that not only were these kids not discouraged by failure, get this, they didn't think they were failing. They thought they were learning. Some came to the conclusion that she, uh, Dweck came to the conclusion that human beings have two different, almost opposite mindsets about life. One of them is a closed mindset. And a closed mindset is when you believe your worth depends on how competent and perfect you are. You're perfectionist. Anybody a perfectionist here? Of course, going through open doors is mostly something for a closed-minded set person to be avoided because every time there's a challenge my worth is on the line and I never ever 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 want to make a mistake so I never ever ever leave the palace I stay safely behind the walls I take no risks I learn nothing Dweck says there's another way to go through life and that's what might be called an open mindset those with an open mindset believe that what matters most is not perfection. What matters most is growth. Growth is always possible. A commitment to growth means that people embrace challenge. So the goal is not trying to look smarter than everybody else. The goal is to grow beyond where I am today. And people with an open mindset believe that failure is indispensable to that process and something to be learned from. Ultimately, for us, faith provides the greatest foundation for an open mindset, Ortberg says. The reason I don't have to prove my worth is that I'm already loved by God no matter what. I'm already graced by God. I got this safety net of love all around me. And the reason I can be open to, to tomorrow is that God is already there in tomorrow waiting for me. Ortberg says we must abandon a closed doorway of looking at God, our lives, and ourselves if we're to respond to the open door God puts in front of us. Closed door thinking may disguise itself as prudence or common sense, but it's really a refusal to trust God because plain and simple, we're scared. Closed door thinking is David's brothers saying you can't beat Goliath. Stay home. Closed door thinking is the Israelites telling Joshua and Caleb that their enemies are like giants and the Israelites are like grasshoppers, so let's just pack up and go back to Egypt and be slaves again. Closed door thinking is the rich young ruler deciding that discipleship would be nice, but it costs too much. I'm going back to daddy's. It's me every time I choose hoarding over generosity or silence over speaking hard truth in love. It's me when I claim to believe in God, but when he says go, I stay. I'm a statheist. By the way, that's a whole lot bigger problem for the church than atheists are statheists. 
Closed-door thinking looks safe, but it's the most dangerous thinking of all because, you see, if you don't go through the doors God opens, you're on one side of the door and He's on the other. Do not be afraid to risk, to fail, because God uses failure as one of His best tools to grow us. Failure in God's hands can educate us as few other things can. Get out of the palace. Try something new. Look at it this way. If Moses had never failed, Moses would have never ended up in the desert. And if he never ended up in the desert, he would have never met his appointment with a burning bush. He would have never, you know, he would have never been broken and been able to be used by Yahweh. What if Moses had never failed? He would have sat on the throne of Egypt as a pagan king the rest of his life, and we'd have never heard of him. God leads us through failure. Moses' failure was the start of God's calling on his life. You know, Jesus said, don't be afraid. In the Bible, God says to human beings 364 times, don't be afraid. There's 365 days a year. This is not the day you get to be afraid. Now, I'm not saying go sin. I'm not saying please screw up on purpose so you can get God's grace. I'm not saying, you know, don't try. But I'm also saying don't be afraid to fail following God in new ways either. Because failure never stops God from growing us teaching us, expanding us. In fact, failure usually accelerates the process of what God really wants to do in us. The problem with most of us human beings is not that we're too weak for God to use, but that we're too strong for God to use. Like Moses, we still live as if everything's up to us. So God has to break us of that nasty habit. Or more often than not, you know what? He lets us break ourselves. He has to first let us be humble so that we will finally listen and realize what we are and what we are not. Humility, by the way, is not about telling ourselves how stupid we are or shaming ourselves. Humility simply is looking at God and saying, I'm not you. It's not about hating ourselves, but an honest assessment of ourselves. One writer puts it this way, and I love the way he put it. Humility is not about convincing ourselves or others that we are unattractive or incompetent. It's not about beating ourselves up or trying to make ourselves nothing. If God wanted us to be nothing, He wouldn't have made us in the first place. Humility has to do with a submitted willingness to God, not hating yourself. And this writer says this, Humility always brings a kind of relief. He said a friend named Gwen Bird was teaching a Sunday school class and decided to have the children reenact the creation. This required children to portray portray animals and plant, plant life. I don't know about you, but I think I could handle plant life. One six year old, whom we'll call Jonathan, was assigned to stand on a ladder and shine a flashlight on the whole proceedings. He was supposed to represent God on the ladder, shining the light. Just about the time the creeping things were starting to creep, and and 
over to where the swimming things were starting to swim, Gwen felt a tug on her skirt. It was God. He wanted out. And he said to her, I'm just feeling too crazy to be God today. Could you get somebody else? Humility, if ever we could grow into it, would not be a burden. It would be seen as an immense gift. Humility is the freedom to stop trying to be what we're not. And we're not Superman or Superwoman. Or pretending to be what we're not and accepting appropriate smallness. In Luther's words, humility is the decision to let God be God. All of us would do ourselves an immense favor if once a week we would look in the mirror and say to ourselves, I'm just too crazy. I'm feeling just too crazy to be God today. Hey, Woody, would you get somebody else? You ought to try that. The problem with most of us human beings is that not that we're too weak for God to use again, but we're too strong. In the desert, I learn about myself, warts and all. I learn truth about myself I could never learn in the palace. Jesus, by the way, has two main lessons for you to learn in the desert. If you want to know God's will for you, I can tell every person here today what God's will for you is. All right? It's two things. And it's true for every person, and it will be true for you every day of your life. You want to hear it? That's why I get paid the big bucks, so listen up. The first is this. God's primary will for your life is not achievement. It's not how high you go. It is the person you become. His primary goal for your life is not how much money you make or how educated you become. It is, as Dallas Willard put it, to become a magnificent person in the image of God's Son. That's God's goal for your life. God intends to make you like Jesus. Nothing less. It will be one of his two main goals for the rest of your lifetime. And, uh, and here's the sad part, and the, or the part you've got to get ready for. If that is true, expect repeated visits to the desert. I know for me, I have a condo there. It's just where I go often. One of my friends called me God's cat toy. Anyway, <laughs> the goal is not to make us, God's goal is not to make us more competent or smarter. It is to grow us beyond where we are today into the likeness of Jesus Christ. The second main lesson or goal that is true for everyone and will be true for you every day of your life the lesson of the desert is this. When all else is stripped away in the desert and you discover you have only God, you will also discover He is all you ever really wanted or needed all along. See, we, 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 we're drugged, kicking and screaming to God, and we go, oh, no, but I don't want to give up this and this and this. I'll only be left with God. But when you get to God, you go, why was I resisting this? He is enough. He is more than enough. He is the love of my life. There in the desert, we discover God's love in new ways and depths. We discover God's love is not just when we are on top and think we deserve it, but when we're on the bottom and we know we, not, we don't deserve it. You get all of His love anyway. The love of God becomes real, really, really real. When in the marrow of my bones, when I truly know that I am just as loved by God 
when I've fallen on my face is when I am at my spiritual high. It is in the desert, laid bare, where we discover, lo and behold, I am fully known and I am fully loved. So I can stop hiding. You know, we keep singing that hymn, just as I am, just as I am, just as I am. It is in the desert we discover God is our refuge and our strength. That Jesus is the love of our lives that we've always sought. You know, what my, I have, I, you know, my favorite title for a country song is looking for love in all the wrong places. Because I watch it every day of my life. What people want is the love of God. It's the purest, greatest, most accepting. It's the greatest thing you will ever discover. But people go looking for lo that love everywhere else except at its source. We go looking for love in all the wrong places. My other favorite country song is Drunk on a Plane. Uh, it's in the desert that I learn his love is stronger than my success or my failure. That it's in the desert I discover his love is stronger than my sin. It's in the desert that I discover his love is stronger than my ignorance. And that it is, his love is even stronger than my lack of faith sometimes. Sometimes when I have a whole time, hard time holding on to him, in the de desert I discover how hard he's holding on to me. Because what Jesus wants, by the way, is our utter dependence, our utter neediness, our hunger for intimacy. God's not after perfection. He's not after Superman or Superwoman. He's not after our strength. He's actually after the opposite. He's after our weakness. He's not after our competency, but our battered hearts. Do you think that God wants you? Here's the main qualifier. I need you. I've screwed up. I've made mistakes. I am empty without you. If you can come to God and go, I am screwed up, welcome to the kingdom of God. He can work with that. He just can't work with your pride. He can't work with your arrogance. He can't work with your pretense. He can't work with your lies. He can't work with all that stuff we tell ourselves. What God needs is people who come to him just as they are and are honest about it. D.L. Moody said years ago, Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was somebody. He spent the next 40 years of his life thinking he was nobody. And then he spent the third 40 years of his life discovering what God can do with nobodies. I'd like to amend that statement just a little. Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he could do anything. The next 40 years discovering he was a limited and ultimately a powerless human being in the face of reality. And the last 40 years, discovering that God, what God can do with limited and powerless human beings. Moses discovered that his strength was of no use to God at all. And that his thoughts were not God's thoughts. They weren't on the same page with this. And that his heart and God's heart were not one. How did Moses learn? It took failure to teach him that. It took going on the run to Midian to teach him that. It took the desert to show him the truth. It took brokenness to make him ready to be used. 
Never forget, Moses did not see a burning bush in Pharaoh's courtyard. It was in the desert, alone and broken, that Moses saw a burning bush. And it was not till he was a broken shepherd in the desert that he was ready to see a burning bush. It was not till then that Moses slowed down enough from climbing to the top to pay attention to a shrub on fire in the desert and notice that it wasn't consumed because you see them big and important people don't have time to slow down and watch a bush in the desert burn. They're in chariots drawn by Egyptian horses. They're too busy. They're on their way. Moses, the old Moses, would never have seen a burning bush. If you're in the desert today, I've got great news. That's where God does his work, his best work. And he has big plans for you. He is working. And so I just, let me sum it up this way. Don't be afraid to take a risk for God. Don't be afraid to fail for the kingdom. Don't be afraid to love someone and and go, oh, I can't love them. They may reject me. Don't be afraid to tell someone the truth, including the truth about Jesus Christ. If all you can do is fail, I got great news for you. Jesus uses that stuff. It's like firewood in the fire. And he burns it into your heart and uses it. Do not be afraid. Do not be scared to look bad. Do not be scared to try new things. Do not be scared to screw up. Let God use you. Because you know what? The biggest thing I've seen with so many sincere Christians, the biggest thing that blocks them from serving God is their own perfectionism. They are closed-door Christians. They won't go through doors because they might make a mistake. But God's on the other side of the door. Get on, get on to the other side of the door. And if you make a mistake, that's okay. God handles mistakes all the time. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. I'd like the worship team to come forward. While they're coming, I'd like the intercessors to come forward, and I'd like us to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the grace that uses everything in our lives. Not just our successes, but our failures. Not just our good ideas, but our bad ideas. To teach us and grow us. Thank you, Lord, that even when we are crushed, you use the crushing. Even when we are broken. That is when you move in full force. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you work with real human beings, like Moses and like David, like Abraham, like us. Lord, these people were hardly perfect, but you used them in a mighty way because they would risk everything for you And they were willing to make mistakes in the risking. Help us, Jesus. In Jesus' name. Again, if you want prayer for anything, you can come up front. And Mary Varghese 
Again, a person with special discernment and special gifts from God will be on the front row here or the second row, and she will pray for you. If you feel a special need, please see her. Would you stand? Will you give God your perfectionism today? If you have a battered heart, congratulations. It's just what God's looking for. If you've been humble, congratulations. The Spirit's about to move in your life. Let's sing this last song.